Thank you, and it's great to be here with you this morning. Uh, I am going to talk to you a little bit this morning about things that I talk about with my students in medical school where I teach. I teach at uh, Stony Brook School of Medicine in Long Island, New York, for those of you who don't know me. And uh, there's a lot of attention being paid to educating healthcare professionals in 2019 about things that people my age and my generation were never taught about. Uh, and uh, while for many, many years I have lectured on things like chronic pain assessment and opioid risk assessment, and I've done research projects and things like that, uh, when I was thinking about what I wanted to talk about this year, uh, it really revolved around things that would make us look in the mirror at ourselves or maybe reflect on some of the things that we, we face in our practices or our disciplines uh, and see how we can identify them and better deal with them. So just to get the chronic pain assessment piece out of the way, though, I'm going to give you my one-minute chronic pain assessment talk, okay? If we think about patients who might be considered for anticoagulant therapy, we need to think about how we're going to discuss the risks and benefits of that treatment with patients, how we're going to talk about things they can do while they're on those medications, how we're going to think about things they cannot do while they're on those medications, and how laboratory testing is going to guide how that treatment goes. That's it for chronic pain assessment. If you just overlay that Coumadin analogy onto chronic pain assessment, I promise you, regardless of whatever guideline you look at or whatever state mandate you look at, you're going to be good to go. All right, chronic pain assessment, we got that out of the way. I don't have anything to disclose, uh, and I don't need to read you the learning objectives because I think either you've read the synopsis of what this talks about or we have better ways to spend our time. <clears throat> so if we think about chronic pain, and again, if, if we're thinking about honesty, we have to think about the fact that there's some percentage of the time that we blame patients for what happens to them. We judge them. We think about it. We think about the fact, well, somebody like you shouldn't have been doing this. I, you know, somebody like you should try and lose weight. Somebody like you should try and lose smoke, stop smoking. Somebody like you should try and lead a, a healthier lifestyle. It's all about blame. And, and if we think about people who suffer from chronic pain, and we're being honest with ourselves, there's a certain percentage of the time where we think about whether or not they really are. And we'll, we'll mention the word malingering, uh, in the context of this talk, but there's a lot of blame going on in the chronic pain environment today. And, you know, do we wince? You know, I guess if we wince, that might be that we're really being empathetic to what chronic pain sufferers are really going through. Uh, do we wait to respond until we know? I'd venture to say we don't. You know, we teach medical students now never to refer to patients by their, their medical condition. When I used to sign patients out, when I was in my residency, I used to say there's a hip replacement in 302 bed one, there's a kidney in 401 bed two, and there's a liver cancer in 302 bed four. 
That's not okay anymore because we're reducing them to just the diagnosis. And I guarantee you this, when I talk about my sort of one minute Kuminen analogy uh, in, in terms of overlaying it on a chronic pain assessment, none of that has to do with the context in which the patient or the person is suffering from pain. Context is really, really critical. Now, I was fortunate enough to uh, be able to take in Dr. Jay's talk yesterday morning, and uh, he talked about individuality and you know the fact that a lot of the regulatory agencies don't necessarily take individuality into account. I cannot stress to you how important it is to understand the context of someone who's suffering from chronic pain. And basically what that means is you need to think about things that are far away from the chronic pain assessment, far away from the standard H&P that you might get from a patient. Nobody, nobody has ever asked me in a medical setting what my religion is. Nobody's ever talked to me about my culture. Just food for thought. Those things could be contextual. Most of the time people know I'm a doctor, but maybe if I was a taxi driver, maybe the healthcare provider wouldn't even know that because they wouldn't think to ask it. Critical pieces of the puzzle. So we have to think about whether we stigmatize patients by definition. Okay, if somebody's had three back surgeries and we're reading through the papers before we meet the person, in our mind, we're already thinking about, okay, I know what I'm going to see. And I'll, I'll describe to you the person I think I'm going to see. Okay, first time I ever had a, a patient who came for like their fourth back surgery. It was a 27-year-old female. And she was on the operating room table. And I put the EKG pads on. And as soon as the first EKG pad touched her skin, she jumped right off the table. And already my mind is starting to think, oh, she's one of those people. And it made me start to think, what came first, the pain or the personality? So what was I really doing? I was stigmatizing the person. And, and does it depend on the circumstances? Does it have to do with responsibility? How often do we think that people are responsible for the predicaments they get themselves into? I don't think very often people blame someone for having an appendicitis attack. Okay? Maybe you don't blame someone for having a, a, a kidney stone. But you might say, don't you think you're a little old to be doing this? Or don't you think somebody in your physical shape shouldn't be doing that? Probably do all the time. And I'm going to talk to you a lot about the stigmas, a lot about the precognitive thinking, a lot about bias today, and I'm going to be honest with you. And I'm usually very honest with my medical students. I try to teach them bad things that I've done as examples of what not to do. I'm guilty of every single thing that I'm going to talk to you about today. At one point in time in my 35-year career, I've done it all. So it's not like I'm sitting here saying, I'm innocent, but at least now I realize and I can think about whether or not I'm sort of categorizing people. So do we blame and do we say to people and do we through some form of either 
verbal or nonverbal communication transfer the way we're feeling onto the patient. You know, in one of the NIH grants I did on opioid risk assessments, we used to have videos. And we have videos of a nice little old lady who's complaining of chronic arthritic type pain. We have someone who looks like they just got off a motorcycle in a tank top t-shirt with tattoos all the way up to the chin. And we ask the audience, who do you think is the person more likely to abuse the opioid if you're going to prescribe it to them? And I don't need to tell you who picked who. And I think ultimately, if, if everything we do does boil down to the patient at the end of the day, which in my mind it does, then our job is to really give empathy to that person and to advocate for them and walk alongside them and be there with them. And, and empathy is actually a very, very difficult thing to describe to people sometimes. And I had an aha moment earlier this year with my medical students. And I said, here's a way to think about what empathy truly is. Because people often very much confuse it with sympathy. Empathy is not sympathy. So I said, think about this. Somebody has a baby, it's a healthy baby, and it's, you deliver that baby. It's one of the happiest moments in this person's life. And you actually share the happiness with that person, that's empathy. And if you could figure out that feeling and then find that feeling when things aren't going well, then that's empathy too. People usually think about empathy in a negative outcome situation. Try and think about empathy in a positive outcome situation. Everybody's really happy when they deliver a diagnosis of benign. Nobody's ever sad about that. That's empathy. So do we blame people in advance? Do we sort of make a decision like, okay, I'm going to see 25 patients today. Who am I going to blame? How am I going to do it? Or we just, do we just do it in real time? Say, okay, I'm going to wait until I meet you, and then I'm going to decide if I blame you or not. And do we do it in the conscious level of our brain, or do we do it in the unconscious level of our brain? So I guess we need to think about the fact that in, in any one of our cases, regardless of the discipline we're in, regardless of the profession, we need to think about whether or not we are trained to think before we know all the information. And the answer is probably yes, we do. And why would that be? Well, it, we, we do it. We think about before because we have to figure out what the facts are. But we also have to have beliefs about you know, what we might find. And we are going to draw conclusions. A 19-year-old with a torn ACL from playing lacrosse, we're going to think A, B, C, and D. We're going to think we've got to get them back onto the field. We're going to think about all these things that need to happen even before the examination takes place. So we predict the future, right? Because everybody wants to know what the future is. Do we really see the future? We don't see the future. Now, I recently had my house renovated, and the person who did the kitchen had end-stage real degenerative joint disease of the knee. So he talked to me about whether he, or not he should have a knee replacement or not. And I said, absolutely. 
almost everybody I know who has a knee replacement says that I wish I had done it sooner. I don't know why I waited that long. Fair to say that that's what most people think. He had it done and his life has been a misery ever since. He's one of those rare situations where he's just in chronic pain. It's not range of motion related, but he wishes he never did it. So what did I do? I predicted his future when I gave him that advice. Do we dictate the future? You know, when we think about plotting out the future in our mind before we even meet the patient, you know, are we sort of self-dictating the way things are going to go? Now, empirical thinking is something that's good. You learn from experience. People who have been in practice or in profession for a long period of time, the more you know, the more experience you have, the better things get. But we need to be really careful about when we use empirical thinking to shape our decisions because we've determined the future before we even meet the person. Sometimes we use our gut. We use our intuition and we say, I, I don't think this is going to be one of those people that's going to turn out well. And one of those situations to me, and you know, I'm talking about just my own N of one experience, is when patients say to me or have said to me, I have a high pain tolerance, my intuition tells me this is not going to be a good thing. <laughs> Somebody asked me that question, I'd say, I, I don't know, I'm normal. Some people say to me, I have a really low tolerance for pain. People who say that, I've actually seen them do really well, much better than I expect. But the reality is, I have expectations. Do we judge? We absolutely judge. I'm one of the few people who wears a tie in 2019. I wear a tie everywhere I go. Not to the gym, but <laughs> people say to me, like, Zakharov, when are you going to stop wearing a tie? And my answer is never. So people judge me about that. It's okay. We judge each other. It's part of the way we're brought up. Do we label? We absolutely label, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And if we do label people, do we label them at some point in time? When do we label them? And if we do, why do we do it? So here's the, here's the why, okay? First of all, there's a growing number of guidelines that are out there. And the intention is to help us label patients at the end of the day. Maybe you use the word identify. Label is just a fancy word for identify. We want to identify the people who are at higher risk of portraying an aberrant drug-related behavior. We label. We do it because we want to try and decrease the amount of opioid-related overdose deaths, right? That's what all the regulatory agencies want us to do. There's certainly a lot of negative media attention that's happening. We can't escape from it. And stigma is attached to that. And it's not only stigma at the patient level, it's stigma at the healthcare provider level. Anybody here from California? Okay. Anybody aware of the California Death Certificate Project? A few of you, it's really important for you to Google because there's examinations of death certificates going on in California to look at how long before the person expired an opioid prescription was written. And if there's a certain amount of time that that prescription was written, there's a high likelihood that the prescriber is going to at least receive a letter of investigation. 
So there's a lot of reasons that both patients and healthcare providers could be labeled. Comorbid medical complexity, state mandates like what I just mentioned in California, competing educational programs. I cannot count how many educational programs I see on safe opioid prescribing. And I would love to tell you that they're all uniform in their curriculum, but they're not. And hopefully most, if not all of you, are planning on attending the keynote tonight, and we're going to talk about that. Yet, despite this, for people in training, there's still an educational vacuum that people in training are exposed to today. Somewhere around 6% of training programs in the country have a bona fide curriculum for pain and substance use disorders. At Stony Brook, where I teach, it took me 13 years. This year, we just started a mandatory program for all fourth-year medical students on pain and addiction. It took me 13 years to do that. One would think with all the negative media attention that every training program for every discipline would have a program like that. And obviously fear of regulatory scrutiny is a reason why we label people. Because we want to make sure that we stay on the rails and we tell you at many of the talks here at this conference that if you get investigated, here's what you need to do. So there's all this labeling that's going on for everybody involved. Beware of the drug-seeking patient. That's a label. Beware of the prescriber who is too willing to write an opioid prescription. So cognition is when we think about the fact that we acquire knowledge, we understand what's going on, we sort of use our brains, and we come to some conclusions. And we use our intellect to, to acquire the knowledge, we digest it, we process it, we reason it, we understand it, we turn it into language, and we then sort of say what we think, and then we form beliefs and attitudes. The real question is, when does the formulation of beliefs and attitudes actually happen? Is it before the intellectual process takes place? I would argue that in many cases, the answer to that question is yes. And from the patient perspective, the one who's being labeled, the one who's being judged, pick anything out of this word mash you want. This is what they feel. They feel that their reputation is immediately going to be diminished, that they're going to be devalued, they're going to be humiliated, they're going to feel alone, and on and on and on. Pain patients often feel the need to prove to us that their pain is real, right? They know. They don't really understand what we talk about. They don't necessarily understand subjective, objective, and you know those kinds of things. But they do know that my job as the patient is to try and make sure that who's ever seeing me believes what I say. Stigmatization is definitely real, and stigmatization ramps up when opioids are introduced into the story. You know, in, in my medical school, we use these standardized patient simulations now. We have filming studios where we actually have patients come in and medical students interview them, examine them, so on and so forth. And uh, we sort of give students the opportunity to, to simulate what real life would be. And I can't tell you the number of times 
when students hear that patients are on opioids, they say, oh my gosh, it's one of these people. My attending told me that anybody who asks for an opioid prescription is drug-seeking right off the bat. Sometimes we react in a, in a way that is pity. And again, sympathy and empathy are not the same thing. And we always have in the back of our minds, probably, suspicion about malingering. Everything else you could think of from the patient perspective is going through the patient's mind when they come to see us. The only analogy, and I analogize everything I could think of, is when I have a noise in my car and I bring it to the shop and they don't hear the noise. I feel like the wheel shimmies at 60 miles an hour. I took it on the highway. I didn't feel anything. I find that really upsetting. And then now I got to think about the fact that is, is the mechanic judging me? <clears throat> There's definitely a need for individuality and choice. We need to take into account the fact that pain, pain ratings are really, really subjective. Uh, if I were king of the kingdom, uh, there's a lot of things I would do. There's a lot of things I'd add to the water supply for sure right off the bat, like an antidepressant, a beta blocker, a statin, and an aspirin. I'd add that right to the water to, to, from the get-go. But context always, always varies. Somebody who's in sports medicine, there could be 10 people who are between the ages of 18 and 20 years old sitting in the waiting room. There's no way from all the things that a standard assessment will capture that they're exactly the same. Some of them might come from broken homes. Some of them might come from different cultures. Some of them might have to work to support themselves through school and on and on and on. But what we need to think about in terms of potential hazards for us is to not use gut checks. Don't rely on the gut. Don't over-rely on prior experience, even though we have been taught that empirical thinking is a really good way to approach things and that the more patients you see, the, the better off you're going to be. And do not superimpose anecdotal experiences onto what you see with patients. Do this all the time. I've done it many times myself. Like people say, all of a sudden, I'm running into a situation where I'm doing random urine drug screens, and everybody seems to be turning up positive for this. Oh, so I expect to see that in my patients too. There may be many, many things that the standard assessment may not capture. So my challenge to you all is that on Monday morning, because I always have to think about what I might say to you in my talks that you can think about on Monday morning, regardless of whether you're a pharmacist or a nurse practitioner, a PA, psychologist, social worker, whatever, is think about asking a patient a question that is not part of the standard assessment. How's your emotional state been? Are you facing any emotional challenges? Cultural things that may impact you cultural differences, different external pressures that they have in their lives. So I had another aha moment a couple of years ago. We gave a case to my medical students, and it was a situation where there was an Asian family, and the mother, who was in her late 70s, was diagnosed with cancer. And the children didn't want 
the physician to tell the mother about the diagnosis? And my response was, I don't really think so. I believe in ethics. I actually teach a course in ethics. People have the right to know what's wrong with them. I didn't know that even today in 2019, many Asian cultures believe that to maintain hope, that that's totally acceptable. Because I was only thinking about it from my perspective. So precognitive judgments. Like it or not, there's no question about it, counting myself, we bring them into the examination room or our patient interactions every single time we meet the patient and likely before. Regardless of whatever intake we have in our clinic settings, information about the patient, there's some amount of information that we digest before that examination room door opens. Let me see what I'm dealing with here. Okay? We read about them before we ever meet them, and we judge them based on what we read before we even see their face. As soon as we see their face or touch them or examine them, just like that 27-year-old that jumped off the table uh, when I put the EKG pad on, we then hone in on even judging them to a deeper level. The end result is that it could potentially corrupt our assessment and treatment. So we could do everything right but precognitive thinking could totally destroy it. And I'll even show you some ways that precognitive thinking could work the other way. Like, there's a lot of discussion going on now about cancer and non-cancer pain, you know, now that the opioid pendulum has swung the other way. And there's no question that a diagnosis of cancer gives you an emotional card to play. You have cancer. But there's a lot of question about when does a cancer patient who has pain after their treatment is successful become a chronic pain patient and when are they no longer a cancer patient? Patients judge themselves and patients judge us too. It's not only the media that labels us, patients judge us too. So consider the fact that you may not have the whole picture, and at any given time, a person could be dealing with a whole host of other things in the context of their lives that you might be unaware of and dig for those kinds of things. You might be surprised what you find. Something else interesting is to think about is the fact that your mood might determine actually what you do. And it's one of the most challenging things, I think, that we teach healthcare professionals in terms of professionalism is how to keep giving patients when you're not 100% that day. And this is coming from someone who really, I don't really trust people who are always exactly the same every single day. Because every day is not right, bright and rosy. Some days you get up on the right side of the bed, some days you get up on the wrong side of the bed. What we need to look in the mirror and think about is that our mood could dictate things that we think about precognitively and the way we judge people. And under emotional stress, we may behave very differently than if we weren't under that stress. So we are fully stocked with cognitive biases. And one has to think about the fact as to whether or not we're, we're taught them from the beginning. So each time I prepare the, my talks, I, I learn a lot. And I learned that there are so many biases that are out there, they're too, too numerous to count. They're like bacteria. 
So I'm just going to give you a synopsis of some of the most common ones. And I guarantee you, you're going to shake your head and say, yep, know that one. There's a bunch of them, okay? And there's a lot that's been written about them. This is not just Zakharov thinking. There's a lot in the scientific literature that has been written about biases in patient interactions and biases in clinicians with respect to pain management. So I guess the first thing we need to really think about is prejudice, attribution error. What can we look at or what can we identify in patients that would allow us to judge and stereotype them? Why do we do it? Because we all stereotype people. We categorize them. And there are so many things to pick from that we have to do it. You're old, you're young, your gender, your socioeconomic status, your educational level, your medical or substance abuse history, your diagnosis, the list goes on and on. So what do we do about it? You be aware of it. You know, I was, I was thinking about a physician I know. She's an anesthesiologist in Chicago. Her name is Carmen Green. And she is probably the single most respected authority on prejudice in emergency department uh, settings with respect to African-American people and likelihood of them being prescribed an opioid compared to Caucasian people who present with exactly the same pain-related complaint. And the reality is that the African-American is way less likely to be prescribed an opioid than a Caucasian person in an emergency department in 2019 today. But the reality is there is prejudice and there are so many ways for us to stereotype. So it's worth us thinking about the fact that we might be using some attribute as a way to judge the person that we're presenting in our practice. Anchoring is another very common one. It focuses on one particular sign or symptom that you're able to identify one single piece of information and then you hang every single thing that follows on that piece of information. You sort of stop listening. Now, I, I cycle. That's one of my big things for, uh, for uh, exercise. And I guess there was some period of time, uh, maybe 10 summers ago, where I cycled 10 days in a row. And I was really proud. An old guy like me, I bike 10 days in a row. I'm really good. I develop pain in my knee. I go to see the orthopedist. And I said, I have pain in my knee. And he said, well, did you do anything? And I said, well, I bike 10 days in a row. And he said, ah, there's your answer. You shouldn't be biking 10 days in a row. And I'm thinking, what was he really basing that on? He was basing it on the fact that I gave him a piece of information that he could say, yeah, you did this to yourself. Don't bike so much. You're getting older. You got to take it easy. And why do we do it? We do it because of efficiency. We are taught that we need to be as efficient as we possibly can in our diagnostic process. We learn from experience. And the end result could be that we have tunnel vision in terms of what we consider. So what should we do? We should reassess the person over a period of time, and we should reconsider the diagnosis. Just in case new signs or symptoms occur, there's an unexpected way that the patient responds to treatment. 
we have to be willing to accept that there may be a lack of progress, and we also have to be willing to accept that there may be an unexpected outcome. Next is premature closure. I have no clue who came up with all these names, but God bless them. Premature closure, acceptance of an initial diagnosis and failing to challenge it or look any further. So a person gets referred to you or somebody asks you to consult on a certain patient and you see what their diagnosis is, case closed. Look no further. Failing to challenge it or look any deeper. Why? Well, I was always taught in my medical training that if you give a person enough time, they're going to actually tell you what's wrong with you. And, and I probably still believe that to a large degree today. But if somebody tells me what's wrong with a person, the likelihood of me looking further is very, very low. So I'm guilty of this. What to do? Always have a differential. Even if somebody spoon feeds you a patient with a certain condition, think about what other things could be going on. And look for red flags and then follow up on those red flags. Consider the worst case scenario. That doesn't mean somebody who has a headache has a brain tumor. But consider the fact that it's the worst case scenario, what it could be, and then just challenge yourself to rule it out and cross it off the list. And when you're doing it, document it. Search satisfaction. This is another very common one. When, an, when something abnormal is found, the search is over. Eusodium was 129. Okay, we're done. You're having, you're having pain? It's probably muscle cramps related to electrolyte imbalance. I don't need to see any more. Why? Well, I guess the most common thing, and we could all nod our heads with respect to this, is somebody who has back pain who gets sent for the CAT scan or the MRI and they're told, I have herniated or bulging discs, right? We all have herniated or bulging discs. Gravity is, is, the, is the offending agent in this story. But everybody wants to pin the tail on the donkey, right? So if you find something wrong, it must be that. So, so you look for something, you find it, you're very satisfied that you found what you're looking for, and then you stop looking any further. Ask yourself more than one time, could there be something else that could be going on? And again, keep in mind, this could be about context, right? Personally, on days where I wake up on the wrong side of the bed, the, thing that, the things that bother me on a daily basis bother me more on those days. If somebody loses their job, if somebody loses a relationship, if somebody loses a loved one, if somebody's experiencing stress from a, a different place in their lives that we are not probing for, that could push them into the negative state. Zebra retreat. Uh, zebra retreat is if it's not common, it can't be what's going on. Not considering the rare case. It looks like a duck. It quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. Not going to be a zebra. It's usually good advice, right? Because go where the money is, is what we're taught. We have to think about that fact. And it's usually good advice. 
But what do we need to do? We need to make sure that we at least consider that the zebra could be there, and then we rule it out. Thought maybe it could be this. Highly unlikely it's this. Not that. Blind spotting. Boy, I'm starting to feel really bad about myself because I am guilty of literally of all of these things. We have blind spots. We don't see what we don't want to see. Being less likely to detect bias in ourselves than in others. Why? Because it's natural. It's not related to intelligence, self-esteem, and ability to make unbiased adjustments, uh, judgments rather. We tend to do what we know and we think it's best. And, and that makes us feel comfortable, right? We're very comfortable doing what we're, we're used to doing. So we develop blind spots. So what should we do? We should look in the mirror, we should be self-aware, and we should identify who and what makes us feel uncomfortable, and then figure out why that is. Clustering illusions. I guess this happens a lot here in Vegas. I'm on a streak. I'm on a good streak. I'm on a bad streak. Are there really streaks? Because we believe in streaks. We all have some kind of gambling tendency when we deliver the care we give to people. What do we do? We have to realize it's a fallacy and that a bad case or a string of bad cases are just that, a string of bad cases. They're not related to each other and they don't have to do with any streak. And this leads right into the bandwagon effect. Let's jump on the bandwagon. When a diagnosis sticks to a patient, potentially distorts the entire diagnostic process. This person has a history of back pain. This person has a history of total body pain. Uh, fibromyalgia was ruled in. Fibromyalgia was ruled out. Person has a history of substance abuse. Even though they have bona fide pathology, they're assumed to be drug-seeking by definition. Jump on the bandwagon. Why? Because we all have a permanent record. And it sticks to us. There's a great Seinfeld episode about that, where Elaine gets paranoid about the fact that the doctor wrote something about the fact that she's a difficult patient. And she actually breaks into the doctor's office to try and steal her file. And they catch her breaking into the office. And then they add that to the file. <laughs> <clears throat> so what can we do to prevent the bandwagon effect? Do as diligent assessment as we possibly can. Consciously come to some diagnosis. Take a diagnostic timeout and say, let's make sure that I'm not just jumping on the bandwagon here. Now, authority bias is one where I guess I'm probably going to still be guilty of for the rest of my life. And that is the white ivory tower phenomenon. Do I really think what I read in a lot of studies is a representative sample of what's happening in clinical practices today on Main Street? No. Now, you could argue I teach in a white ivory tower, that I teach in an academic tertiary care center, and on and on and on. But there are people who say, I don't buy what the white ivory tower says because I know that that has no, no relationship to the people that I see in my practice. Sometimes we just like to go against authority. That maybe was me in my younger days, not anymore, but the white ivory tower phenomenon for sure. We have to think about knowing what our limitations are to make sure we listen to both patients and experts in the white ivory tower, and then do what we really do best, 
come to our own conclusions and make sure that every member of our team has an has a, a valuable and active voice in decisions that get made. Now we're getting into words that I very rarely use, like availability heuristic. Uh, and that is where recent or vivid diagnoses come to mind first and are overemphasized. Like, I just had a patient with, so now I'm going to be on the lookout for that. Why do we do it? We do it because our brain automatically likes to make mental shortcuts and get us from point A to point B to point C as quickly as it possibly can. And what should we do? We should remember that everybody's individual, watch out for inconsistencies, and make sure that we're not over-investigating because of some zebra that we may have seen or somebody mentioned. Conservatism, probably I'm more guilty of this than I used to be, and that's favoring old evidence over new information. I was actually taught that if you're in primary care and you have 20 good medications to, que- to treat the most common problems in clinical practice, that for your entire time in practice, you'll be good to go. Forget about all the new drugs that come out. Forget about all the new articles and this and that. And, and I have to tell you that with respect to coffee drinking, and I'm a big coffee drinker, I see the pendulum swing all the time. Drink more coffee, drink less coffee, drink more coffee, drink less. Why? It's the way I was taught. It always worked before. If it's not broken, don't fix it, right? So what should we do? We have to keep an open mind. We should be coming here every September and measure what the youngins are saying. Because a lot of times the youngins have some really good things to say. There was a point in time where I was a youngin. And I brought some new things to the practice that I joined. And understand that change is is usually a good thing. I think the ostrich effect is pretty much self-explanatory when it comes to biases. And again, it has to do with the fact that we stick our heads in the sand because we like to avoid the difficult situations. But we should not abandon patients. We shouldn't be firing them. We shouldn't be hanging up signs that say we don't prescribe opioids. Uh, And we shouldn't consider that I consider all people to be drug-seeking until proven otherwise. Don't make assumptions based on the diagnosis without the context. So the chief of the emergency department in my hospital says that if somebody comes in with a diagnosis of cancer, regardless of how long the diagnosis was made, how long ago, or sickle cell disease, his advice to all the staff in the emergency department is give them whatever they want. Any opioid they want, whatever they want. I don't agree with that. That's a case of where precognitive thinking or judgment is working against because it's not taking into account what the person is going through at that point in time. It's the wrong thing to teach people, I think. Outcome bias is judging the quality of a decision based on the outcome. It worked for me before. I don't really know. I can't tell you what the science behind it is, but it's what I do. Why? Because we'd all rather be lucky than smart, right? But what should we do? We should try and standardize the decision-making process, avoid pendulums as much as we can, and base and document decisions based on ethical principles. And if that's something you want to hear more about, come to my talk on ethics tomorrow. The zero risk is making sure that we're biased towards avoiding risk no matter what. And in 2019, it's really easy in the face of all the guidelines we're being... uh, confronted with 
to say, my only way to enjoy, avoid risk is to just not do it. So we need to consider the fact that risk mitigation is not risk elimination. They're two different things. Think about my anticoagulation analogy. Risk-benefit analysis and informed consent that's documented is a critical piece of the puzzle, and that's the best way to avoid risk. Honorable mention, we need to think about placebo effect. Recency, something I just heard about at pain week, is something I just need to do. Search satisfaction and overconfidence. So lastly, I just want you to think about the fact that there are two different ways that we exhibit these biases I've described. Implicit bias is unconscious. We don't usually think about the fact that we're doing it. It could affect our understanding. It could affect our decision-making process. We all have them. Sometimes they're favorable. We may be biased in the patient's favor sometimes. We may be more sympathetic based on a diagnosis of cancer, for example. It's involuntary. We need to realize that it exists, and it's involuntary. And it's usually something we're unaware of. Explicit biases are usually very unfavorable, and they're formulated over time based on some unfavorable experiences we've had or we've been brought up to uh, with in the past, and they can have significant negative impact on patients' physical and mental health at the end of the day. So in summary, what I would say this all means is we need to think about the fact that we may stigmatize patients because of all these biases and corrupt our process. Now, Dr. J mentioned this in his talk. I'm hoping you're going to hear more about this at this year's meeting, but this is the final report that came out from the Department of Health and Human Services uh, just earlier this year in May, and it was best practices with respect to managing chronic pain. And it was established by HHS to try and give people some guidance about best practices and recommendations that address gaps and inconsistencies for managing chronic and acute pain in 2019. And I would agree with Dr. J that my overall impression is that it's very positive. Something that I found very interesting is that there's an entire section in this report on best practices about stigma and about avoiding stigma and how stigma can be a barrier to treatment of painful conditions and it affects everybody in every way all across the patient's environment. And it may be further exacerbated when there's anxiety, depression, or substance use disorder. And there's a really neat chart that they included that showed that there are basically five categories of treatments that we may think about, from medication all the way to complementary and integrative health, and that there are four different critical topics that could impact these five courses of treatment. And look at what's there right on the second line. Right along risk assessment, access to care, and education is stigma. Now, when I think about biopsychosocial model of managing pain, which is an important thing to think about in the context of chronic pain, I usually think about biological factors, and I usually think about psychological factors. What I'd like you to think about on Monday morning 
is the social factors. The things, again, that you may not be capturing in the standard assessment. Ethnicity, education, social support, spirituality, economic factors. The, the report suggests that patients who are receiving or who have previously received long-term opioid therapy for non-malignant pain face both subtle and overt stigma from everybody you can imagine, from their friends, coworkers, and us. And that this results in feelings of guilt, shame, embarrassment, and that can further contribute to symptom chronicity and additional barriers to treatment. So they recommend that we reduce the barriers to care that exist, that we increase patient-clinician education about the underlying disease process and the fact that we stigmatize people or other people stigmatize people. And we increase education to healthcare providers about this in our educational processes. And we try and counter societal, at societal attitudes that may equate pain with weakness. I didn't talk about that in terms of biases, but I think a lot of people do feel that people, people who surrender to chronic pain are actually stigmatized to, to be weak or thought to be weak. And all across the board, this report said that it, education is the answer at every level, whether they were thinking about regulatory, provider, patient, or public education, that it's really important to eliminate the stigma. Now, we don't own this. It's really important that we don't own this in the United States. There is a lot that's been published around the world about this specific aspect of stigma and bias, bias from, from Belgium to Oregon to New Zealand to you name it. But no matter where you go, everybody writes the same thing that stigmatizing patients can ultimately lead to a lower degree of delivery of empathy to patients, which one could argue is what they need from us the most. So watch for certain markers when you are assessing a patient and certain catchphrases that run through your mind that should trigger you to say, let me look in the mirror and let me think. If the word malingering enters your mind, take a step back, think about it. Be really sure. When you say the patient failed a trial course of therapy, who failed who? The patient's probably thinking you failed them. You're thinking the patient failed the course of treatment. The patient might be saying, the last five healthcare providers I went to couldn't help me. I'm hoping you can. That's something we hear a lot. What's the definition of help? Drug-seeking, doctor shopping? Be really, really sure that's what you think is going on. And if you think a patient's lying, really put yourself to the litmus test and make doubly sure before you make that conclusion. And again, these are just a few examples of markers that you should be on the lookout. There are so many more. We need to make sure that we reflect so we recognize about what may be populating our beliefs and attitudes and what drives us to them and what the potential negative impact of precognitive thinking can have on the care that we deliver. It can affect treatment outcomes. It's bad for the patient. It's bad for us. It's bad for everyone. Thank you very much.
I know you have to get to your next session, but I'll be here up in the front in case you have any questions, comments, thoughts.